we've been doing a series on the book of Revelation as a church. Um, so the last book of the Bible, quite easy to find if you've got a Bible. Um, if you want to open up in Revelation 12 now, actually, just find index, and then it will be a few pages before that, if you're still on a paper Bible. Those of you who've got iPads, just search Revelation, you'll find it. Um, we've been doing a series on Revelation for the last few weeks, uh, looking really at what the book's telling us about the glory of Jesus, about the glory of his victory over all things. But it, it tends to be a book that people often shy away from. In fact, either they get overly obsessed with it and they try and decipher every single little detail, um, or they end up shying away from it. And the problem with both approaches is you end up missing the main point. Uh, on the one hand, you get so engrossed in all of these little details and these trying to figure out what every single symbol is and what every number represents that you kind of sometimes end up missing the main point. And when you run away from the book, well, you've, you're going to miss the main point because you're not even reading it. So we want to try and make sure that we're understanding what Revelation wants to say to us. It's not the easiest book in the world to understand. Is this all right? <laughs> I have a scratchy beard. That's what's happening. Is that okay? Cool. Um, so we're going to be looking at what it says to us as a church, what it's, what it's speaking to us, what God wants to say through it, because the whole point of Revelation is to unveil something. That's what Revelation means. Okay, so if you think Revelation, don't, don't automatically think end of the world stuff blowing up. Think God unveiling, showing us what's going on behind the scenes throughout history and how the gospel, in a sense, is something much bigger and much more cataclysmic than we could ever possibly imagine. So today we're in, in chapter 12, and what we've done so far is we've looked at, in the first week we looked at John, who writes Revelation, who's an early church leader, who's been exiled to an island called Patmos, he sees the vision that he then writes down, becomes the book of Revelation, and in chapter 1 he sees a vision of the exalted risen Christ, and he's flawed, basically. And Christ says to him, don't be scared, which is kind of a weird thing, it's like, don't be scared of the most terrifying sight you have ever seen. Um, but it's what he's saying, don't be scared, I was dead and now I'm alive and I have the keys of death and Hades. So, in other words, I'm in control, and if you're on my side, there's no need to be, be scared, ultimately. And then he gives um, John these letters to write to various churches, which we looked at a few years ago. If you want to look in more detail, you can download those sermons. And then you jump to chapter 4, and suddenly the, the real kind of vision, I suppose, of Revelation begins, where in chapters 4 and 5, John has a vision of heaven opened. And he sees in chapter 4 the fact that God reigns. So God is seated on his throne. He's surrounded by living creatures and elders who are all worshipping him. And then in chapter 5, we find out that Jesus wins. We find out that the lamb, which is kind of imagery of a, a slain victim, um, so Jesus becomes the lamb, and as a result of that, he has actually won a victory that's so significant that he can basically unravel history. That's the idea in chapter 5. He is now worthy to unravel history because he was slain for the sins of the world, and he's... Which, can you think, you're worthy because you were slain. That's a bit of a weird thing to say, but Revelation keeps on going on about the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was slain. Heaven doesn't want to brush the, uh, brush the cross under the carpet. And you constantly get that reference to the lamb throughout Revelation. But because God reigns and Jesus wins, that means that history can basically come to, it, come to its climax. And so what Steph looked at a couple of weeks ago was... Um, a, a massive chunk of Revelation. It was like chapters 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 15, and uh, 16. So quite, quite a lot. I uh, know, more than that. Uh, chapters 30. No. Where did you get to? That was it. Yeah, I got it right. <laughs> um, and he's, um, basically what those chapters are doing are looking at 
a God's eye perspective on history and showing that God is in control over everything that happens. And it kind of feels like it's repeating itself over and over again. That's kind of the idea. It's, it's not necessarily, you don't read Revelation from start to finish and assume it just all goes chronologically like that. It's designed to do something different. So what you get a lot of the time is these kind of cycles. So you get a load of trumpets that are blown and then you get a load of bowls that are, of wrath that are poured out and they're kind of referring to the same thing but the main point behind it is God is in control even throughout all of these problems that are going on. Yeah? So that's kind of how Revelation works. And then what we, we get is chapter 7, which Steph looked at last week, um, talking about the nations coming in and all of God's people being set apart for him and sealed. So in other words, they're kept so that on the final day, nothing will ultimately have harmed them. And they come from every nation and tribe and tongue. And we saw this vision of the end of time where all God's people from every nation are gathered around his throne, worshipping him, which is just a, an incredible thing to look at, particularly on Nations Sunday, where we're celebrating all of the nations and we've got this amazing vision of every tribe and nation and language standing before the throne. So that's where we're up to now. And what I'm going to do today is look at particularly at chapter 12, but also 13 and 14 a little bit. And again, what we're doing is we're kind of going back to the beginning of the story, but from a different perspective. And what I've called today is the lamb, the beast, and the devil. Because you've basically got three main actors in these three chapters, the lamb, the beast, and the devil. And we're going to have a look at what these chapters are about. They're not the easiest chapters to understand, but as with the whole of Revelation, it's absolutely glorious when you get beneath beneath the text itself and just say, what's this text saying to us? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, please listen. Because might, I might be reading it out and you think, what on earth is this? Hopefully when I've explained it, you'll get to see that we believe something that is so gigantically huge and amazing that it almost sounds too good to be true. For those of you who are Christians, please listen, regardless of what you're going through. If you're going through the most amazing time in the world, listen, because there will be a time where you're not going through the most amazing time in the world, and you will need chapters like this to keep you going. For those of you who are going through what you might describe as hell on earth, please listen, because these are encouragement for you. But they're they're not necessarily the easiest chapters either to understand or to really preach on and listen to. So it might not necessarily be happy clappy for the whole time. In fact, it definitely won't. But hopefully what we'll see by the end is that we get Jesus winning and the ultimate victory of Christ is far more glorious than all of the horrific stuff that does appear in these chapters. So that's where we're going to go. But before, I'm just going to read a couple of stories um, that I found on a a website, a fairly reliable website. So there's a story, a man called, <laughs> you'll see, hopefully, Alan, no, it's not Wikipedia. <laughs> this, uh, I can't, it's, a, it's a website talking about um, Christian martyrs. Um, so as far as I know, it's a fairly reliable source. Um, it's not kind of stuff that's made up. But um, we've got a story about a guy called Alan Jam, who's from China. And he just began planting fruit trees on his land when he met and married his wife, Gulna. They were both active in their church and were soon blessed with two children. Life was good for this young family. Several years later, as the first fruits of the harvest grew near, the government arrested Alim Jam and confiscated everything he owned, accused him of harming national security and using his business as a cover for preaching Christianity among the Uyghur ethnicity. In January 2008, Alim Jam was sentenced to 15 years in prison, the maximum penalty in China, for the charge of divulging state secrets. So he's put in prison, separated from his family, for preaching the gospel. Beaten and left for dead, this is another guy, Pastor Gajal Nilaldri, 
Paul, 38, lay bleeding profusely from severe wounds. Earlier that day, he had been warned by a group of Hindu extremists to stop evangelizing. Unfazed by their threats, he continued to boldly distribute Bibles and share God's word. On July the 1st, while driving home on a borrowed scooter, two men suddenly attacked me with their faces covered with handkerchiefs, he said. After knocking the pastor off the scooter, the men began to viciously beat him. When several Christians came to his aid, the assailants fled. Near death, he was rushed to the hospital where doctors treated him for severe head wounds and internal injuries. According to certain statistics, about 105,000 Christians die every year because they preach the gospel and because they believe the gospel. And apparently there are currently over 100 million persecuted Christians around the world. Now, we don't necessarily have people in this room who have been, well we wouldn't, who have been killed for the gospel or even necessarily tortured and beaten. But we definitely have people in this church who have been rejected by friends and family Even people who have been forced to flee countries because they've been proclaiming the gospel. And the question today that I want to ask is, why does that happen? Why does that happen? Why why on earth do you have thousands and thousands and millions of Christians around the world who are suffering for the sake of the gospel? I want to ask, why does that happen? What does it look like from God's perspective? And ultimately the question we want to ask is, is there hope? Is there any hope or is it just, you know, what we're Christians, we're just going to die and be beaten and put in prison for the sake of the gospel. Is there any hope? And the answer, obviously, to that is yes, there is hope. But hopefully what today will be is maybe a little bit sobering for quite a few of us to just look at what does the Bible say, what does Revelation say about suffering and about oppression and what does it say about what God thinks about that and what God is doing about that. And what we'll find is that even though there hopefully will be a sobering element to it, There's a glorious view of hope that is in Jesus, which means that even if people face death for the gospel, in a weird way, they end up up conquering. And that's what I want to convince you of today, is that even those who die for the gospel, and in a certain sense, more so those who die for the gospel, end up conquering in in a way which I don't understand, but God does. And so that's where we're going for today. So... That's just to give you a pre-warning. It's not necessarily going to be all nice and happy-clappy, but there is going to be a glorious element to it, and that's where we're going to land. But Revelation 12 to 14 can be particularly puzzling. I think any of Revelation can be a bit puzzling. Um, But what we're going to do, so particularly look at chapter 12 in quite a bit of detail, and what we're going to do is look at it, using it a little bit like a microscope. So has anyone done, you've done biology and you're looking at a cell under a microscope? You've got different lenses on the microscope. So you might... When you're focusing on it, you might choose the lens that's the, the weakest lens, so the one that magnifies quite a bit, so you can get a general sense of what the cell looks like. And then you might think, I want to look at that bit of the cell, so you choose a lens that goes even, even further. And it zooms in a bit further. And then what you do is you think, oh, that's brilliant. I want to look now even closer at that particular part of it. And you choose kind of a third lens, which goes even closer. I remember doing that. You'd kind of flick between the lenses, and it would look completely different. That's a little bit what Reve- like what Revelation 12 to 13 does. In one sense, it gives you a general picture, then it zooms into a certain aspect of it, and then it zooms in again. And that's what we're going to do. So it kind of, it might feel like it's going in circles, saying the same thing over and over again, but in going into more detail. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three lenses of this passage. There are kind of three steps. And the first one of those is verses one to six. So if we could have the words up there. Um, And so I'm just going to read it out, and what we're going to do is look at what this tells us about Well, what it's going to tell us about. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, 
with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in the, in the birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on, on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she, when she bore her child he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one is to rule, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, so it's pretty visual, sometimes confusing and disturbing imagery. But this is basically, in a nutshell, this is Satan's attempt and failure to wipe out God's people and their king. Okay, so that's kind of big summary of what this is talking about. So we're just going to look at what's going on behind the scenes, unveiling heaven's perspective on what's going on here. So we've got a woman, a great sign, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. The woman here is, it seems, representing God's people before the coming of Jesus. So Israel, in other words. Now Israel, the, the, the woman is in the agony of childbirth. So in other words, she's about to give birth to a baby. Now think childbirth in a society where there was no health care and there were no epidurals or any kind of pain relief whatsoever, it's ag- I mean, it's even more agonising than the kind of childbirth you would get, which is already agonising here. This is like, you've got a woman who is in utter pain and who's about to give birth, and the idea is God's people are about to give birth to the Messiah, and it kind of pictorially. What, the Messiah, the King, is going to come out of God's people. That's kind of the, the imagery that's going on there. And in the lead up to the birth of Jesus, in fact, God's people were actually, actually suffered quite a bit. We won't go into much details, but as you kind of go through the centuries, through the Old Testament, and then between the Testaments, you see that God's people just seem to be more and more oppressed and persecuted and have dominion over. And it seems like almost it's getting worse and worse and worse until you get to the birth of Jesus. And it's a little bit like if you're giving birth to a child, the pain, it seems, seems to be the most intense before you get the greatest joy. So it's absolute horror, pain, anguish, and then suddenly this baby pops out and you're like, that was worth it. And that's the image that's going on there. The Bible uses that kind of imagery a lot to talk about the the pains of childbirth. Something good is going to come as a result. And what happens is that she ends up giving birth to a male son, which we'll look at in a little bit. Number one, we have the woman who represents God's people. Then we get a dragon. So another sign appeared in heaven, and a great red dragon was there. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. So this probably doesn't take too much guessing to figure out who this represents, but we find out later on this represents Satan, the devil. So just to warn you guys, we do have a spiritual enemy. Just going to make that clear right at the beginning. This is not kind of like pictorial language. We have, well it is pictorial language, but it's representing something spiritual. We have a evil enemy who wants to wipe out God's people. And the reason he wants to wipe out God's people is because he knows that a promise has been made right at the back, at the beginning of creation when humans originally failed. Satan came along in the the form of a serpent and deceived human beings. And when God was cursing creation, he cursed the serpent and said, I'm going to put enmity between you and between the woman. One of her offspring is going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. In other words, someone who's descended from the woman is going to come along and when this person comes along, they're going to defeat you. 
So Satan knows right from the start, someone's going to come along who's going to take him out. And this person is going to be part of God's people. So Satan, as a result, thinks, well, I am going to need to take out God's people, and I'm going to need to take out the Messiah, because if I can survive, then my authority will, will still be in, intact. So he sweeps down the stars, which is probably just... Imi- you kind of get this idea of this dragon thrashing around and sweeping down stars. It's the idea of violence that's going on. So stars, it seems, represent God's people here. So you've got Satan is behind all of the, the, the oppression that comes onto God's people in the lead-up to the birth of Jesus. But what you get... As the dragon ultimately thinks, I failed to wipe out God's people by the time the Messiah arrives. So we then get verse 5, um, so for, second half of verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it. It is incredible the, the extent that people will go to to save themselves when they have to. This is meant, this is meant to be disgusting. Like the imagery is meant to make you want to throw up. So woman who's about to give birth, just, I mean, just, the, the picture of it is horrific. You've got a woman who's about to give birth to a like, joyful time of life once it's over, and you've got a dragon who's standing in the place of the midwife waiting to swallow the child as soon as it comes out. Satan will go to any extent that he can to try and wipe out this particular person who's going to be born, because he knows if this person's born, I am done for. And that's what we're going to see is exactly what happens. So he's standing there waiting And you kind of see that behind, if you read the Gospels, this is kind of, I suppose, heaven's perspective on what's going on when, for example, Herod tries to kill Jesus. So Herod, who's kind of a phony king of the Jews, hears that. It sounds like the Messiah's been born in Bethlehem. So what he does is he sends a load of soldiers to go and kill every single male child under the age of two in Bethlehem. Strip back behind the scenes, what you see is a dragon standing in front of a woman ready to swallow. It's horrific. It's gross, but it's what's going on behind the, behind the scenes. Satan is trying to stamp out God's plan. And we've got to be aware of that. We've got to be aware of the, the kind of battle that's going on behind at the time that Jesus was born. Satan knew he was on his way out. He had to do, try and do something. You see that in the wilderness. When Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, Satan tempts him and says stuff like, I have every single kingdom in the world that's given to me. I can give it to whoever I want. If you bow down and worship me, they're yours. And Jesus says, no, it is written, you, will, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. If he'd taken Satan's proposition at that point, he would have avoided the cross and God's will wouldn't have been done. But Satan thought, if only I can take him out right now and make him fail, then that promise that was made of, a, of a, the offspring crushing my head is not going to happen. Satan is desperate to wipe out the Messiah when he's born. But what then happens, we read verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one is to rule, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So in other words, Jesus is born, and then suddenly you get, it's almost like it's born, and then suddenly, whoop, goes straight up to heaven. And you think, I'm sure there was a bit more in the story than that. But what John's saying here is, for the moment, all you need to know is all is well. You don't need to know that it's like, think, I mean, imagine the end of World War II, when someone, when, when they ended up broadcasting the message that the war was over on the radio, most people weren't interested in the details. All they wanted to know is, we're done, war's over. We can talk about the details later, but now we know that all is well. And John's saying, all is well. The Messiah was born, and he has conquered. We're going to see how that works in a minute, but all you need to know for the moment is, all is well. Satan was not able to stop him. So Satan's plan ends up getting foiled, ends up getting um, destroyed, 
And then what happens is you get the woman fleeing, which now, who now kind of still represents God's people. The Messiah ends up being born. He ends up obviously living, dying, rising from the dead, ascends to heaven. And then you get the woman, who still represents God's people, which now includes people from all nations, running away and fleeing into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she has to be nourished for 1,260 days. What on earth does that mean? So it sounds like everything's well. Yeah, it sounds like, okay, Jesus is on the throne, and Satan basically isn't going to be able to to, uh, destroy the woman, and the woman's being kept. Well, in a sense, yes, all is well. But in a sense, John wants to say something that's quite sobering as well. Any mathematicians here quickly able to figure out how many years you get out of 1,260 days? Three and a half. Excellent, and you know the scriptures as well. (laughs) There are certain numbers that mean things to people. So if I was to say 9-11, if I'd said that 30 years ago, everyone would have been like, what, 9-11? Now you know exactly what I mean. Anytime I say the the numbers 9-11... You know, oh, okay, that refers to the two, two planes flying into the World Trade Center. We know what that means because we've lived through that, or that's part of our history in a sense. 1,260 days is three and a half years, and that's something that was prophesied about by the prophet Daniel, about an intense time of persecution, which happened in the second century when a Greek king came along, entered, Jeru- entered Jerusalem, ended up killing loads of people, stopping them following the Jewish law, forcing them to not circumcise their children, and ultimately sacrificing a pig on the altar in the temple, which is just the most insulting, desecrating, horrific thing you can do to, to Jewish people. And that persecution lasted three and a half years. And John's saying, the women is going to, God's people are being kept, but. It's during a time of intense persecution. You're going to survive, but it's going to be intense persecution. So it's not, it's kind of all's well, ultimately, but there is suffering, there is persecution coming. So that's kind of the first six verses. We get the first lens of the microscope. We have God's people. Out of God's people comes the Messiah. We have a dragon who is Satan who desperately wants to wipe out God's people and who desperately does everything he can to try and wipe out the Messiah. He fails in doing that and God's people are kept safe even though they're going to go through intense, horrific persecution. Does that make sense? Okay. We're now going to zoom in. Second lens of the microscope. So the last two verses, verses 5 and 6, we had the uh, child was born and is taken up to heaven. And the woman flees into the wilderness. What John does now is, well I suppose God giving the vision to John, turns the microscope lens and says let's look a little bit closer at those two verses. So we get verses 7 to 17. So I'm just going to read those out. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and the, as his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our gods and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their witness or their testimony and they love not their lives even unto death therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them but woe to you O earth and sea for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short and when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child but the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is 
to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like an, like an earth, um, so like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the, um, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dra- that the dragon had poured out from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So this bit, second lens of the microscope, is about zooming into verses 5 and 6 and saying how was the devil's plan defeated and what ends up being the result of that. So you're going to look through those verses and just see what's going on there. So first of all, we've got a battle in heaven. So we've got Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fighting back. Anyone want to try and have a guess at what this might be representing? It's an interesting imagery, but... No one? This is, it seems, a reference to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. You might look at it and think, doesn't look like it. But again, remember, Revelation is unveiling something. So we've got a battle going on between Satan and between Michael and his angels. Michael seems to be the angel in the Old Testament who represents God's people. So in a sense, you've got a clash behind the scenes of God's people, the saints, and of Satan and his angels. And that is actually what is going on behind the scenes at the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. There's a battle that's going on. Much more is going on than you think. It's like you see the tip of the iceberg. You see the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you look below the water, you'll see that there was a spiritual battle that was going on that is far bigger and far more extreme than even the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross that you could see. And that's what's going on behind the scenes. You've got um, so Satan and his angels fighting against God, God, basically, against heaven. And what happens is heaven wins and Satan is cast down from heaven. That's good news. Okay? That is good news. Now, it might surprise you, but Satan actually had a particular job in heaven before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We might not, but I think that might be surprising to some of you to, to realize he actually had a kind of a job description to do in heaven. But Satan was basically the, the, um, the, the um, heaven's prosecutor. He was the one who was responsible, in a sense, for calling God to account and saying, you can't let that people survive because they've sinned against you. You see him doing that at the beginning of Job. You see him coming up to God, and God says, have you seen Job, my servant? He's amazing. And Satan says, I reckon if you tested him, and you put him through some hardship, he wouldn't worship you. And you don't get God saying, who are you? Go away. You're not supposed to be here. You've got God kind of saying, okay, well, I'll do that. And that seems to just be his job. It seems to be his job is to accuse. I mean, he's evil. But it seems like he has some kind of authority in the heavenly places, in God's kind of courtroom as such. But what you see is because of the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus, Satan has been fired as heaven's prosecutor. Jesus, during his ministry, said, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. When Jesus came, was born, lived, died, rose from the dead, Satan was hoisted out of heaven and thrown down. He has no job in heaven anymore there is no there's no prosecutor in heaven anymore standing next to god saying look at them seriously can you accept them as part of god's people there isn't anyone standing there next to god anymore because in the life death resurrection of jesus satan has been defeated and has been cast down from heaven god said your job description's over you're not going to be an accuser anymore i'm going to cast you down so those of you today actually who are here and you are carrying intense shame There there might be some of you here, you're you're just like, I feel the weight 
of stuff that maybe, maybe stuff you did before you were a Christian. Maybe you just think, I, I know I've been forgiven, but I just can't shake off the guilt and the shame of what I did. I wish I could rewind and undo that. Some, some of you here, since you've been a Christian, we're Christians, we sin. That's, the Bible's clear about that. You can't claim to have no sin. And you just think, I wish I could rewind and not do I wish I could rewind to however many X years ago and live my life from then again and I wouldn't have made that mistake. And some of you have carried that for years and years. And today God wants to say to you, there is no accuser standing in heaven looking at you and accusing you. Satan might accuse you to your face. He does that. He goes around like a roaring lion, we're told in 1 Peter, and he accuses people. He gets in your face and he says, you remember that thing you did? He's really good at reminding people of that. He's excellent at reminding people of what they have done in the past. He comes up to you, gets in your face and says, you remember when you did that? That has has disqualified you. You were a Christian as well. That has disqualified you from knowing God. And he gets in your face. But Revelation 12 tells us, Anything he says to you on earth has no power in heaven whatsoever. He has been cast down. He's been destroyed. And like that, that amazing hymn says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there. There's someone standing in heaven. There is someone in heaven who's standing, but he's not standing there accusing. He's standing at the right hand of God and he's praying for us. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Satan's been cast down. The accuser of our brothers has been passed down. We get the kingdom of God starts becoming established. And it's not actually just Jesus that wins, we win with him. Verse 11, I don't know if you noticed, it says, we got it up there. They, they, the saints, have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. It's not just Jesus that wins, we join in the victory. And how do we do that? We do it exactly the same way Jesus did, oddly enough. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. That doesn't seem to make sense. You, you conquered Satan by someone else's blood. Which it does actually make a little bit of sense if you think about it. We won the First World War by the might of the British Army. We weren't there. It wasn't our might, personally, but we won. Because they did it on our behalf. And the saints, in a sense, conquer Satan because of the blood of Jesus. That's the first way you conquer Satan. And in that sense, it's not like something you have to do at all. You're like, how do you conquer Satan? The blood of the Lamb. Well, that's already been done. We conquer Satan by something that has already been done. Jesus stands there. No one is to accuse. He has been conquered. And the second way, by the word of their witness, because they love not their lives even unto death. So kind of, just to demystify the word of their testimony, we think testimony, we often think about sharing something that God's done in our lives, which is great and glorifying to God. But when the Bible uses the word, the testimony of Jesus, it means witnessing about his life, his death, his resurrection. It's basically proclaiming Jesus is alive and he's Lord over all things. And God tells us that the saints conquer Satan every time that they tell people about Jesus. And they love not their lives even unto death. They were so... And again, remember, this is happening at a time where the major power of the day is the Roman Empire, and they were starting to get a little bit annoyed with Christians. And John's saying, you do realise that if you go on witnessing, even to the point of death in the arena, you conquer Satan by doing that. It's weird. It's mysterious. It's amazing. That every, every single 
Christian in Iraq who was beheaded for the gospel in a way that I don't understand is actually putting an extra nail in Satan's coffin. I have no idea how that works, but it's, it, it's exactly what's happening. And how do, you, how, I mean, how do you stop a people who can't be defeated by death? You, like, what do you do? Jesus said, I will build my church, the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. Which, yes, on one hand means that the evil powers behind Hades and death will not prevail against it. But Hades is the place that dead people go. The gates of death will not prevail against the church. In other words, the church is not going to get wiped out by death. People can come along and wipe out whole congregations of people because they're sharing the gospel. The church still wins. It's like you can't lose. I don't get how it works, but that's what... And again, remember... They are about to face, or are facing, intense persecution. This is not written in a vacuum. This isn't just kind of abstract theology. This is for people who are going through tough, difficult times, whether that is being, facing death itself for the gospel, or pressure, or social stigma. And John's saying, no, you conquer Satan every time you keep maintaining the witness of Jesus, even when times get tough. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So all is well. Again, yes, to a, to a particular extent, but in another sense, not exactly. Ultimately, yes, John wants us to see that, but he wants us to have a sober understanding of reality until Jesus comes back. Because what happens now is the devil is cast down from heaven and realises that, and he knows he hasn't got long. He's been defeated, and he hasn't got long left. And if you watch, I don't know, if you watch a film where you get the kind of the, the villain dying at the end, they will, like, they take ages to die for some reason, and they will always try and take out as many people as they can with them. Because there's something that happens when you're so furious and angry, and you know you're going out, where you think, I'm just going to do as much damage as I can. And that's the sober reality we've got behind that. And we'll look at that in verses 13 to 17. Satan wants to destroy the church at all costs. He thinks, I'm, I'm defeated. But you know what? I am going to do as much damage as I can in the process of being defeated. He's still, in a se- I reckon he still thinks he, can, he might be able to take the church out. We know that's not going to happen, but he, he's saying, I'm going to have a jolly good go at it. And that will look like very intense, difficult situations for Christians. And it will look like very difficult times. But what we've got to keep our eyes on is throughout the whole time, Jesus has conquered. And so even as we look at this and start thinking, this is sobering, this is gritty, this is nasty, we've got to remember and we'll finish on the fact that Jesus has won. But Satan tries to destroy the church at all costs. First he pursues, you remember, he runs after the woman as she's fleeing into the wilderness. And then he ends up vomiting water out of his mouth. He's trying to just think, I don't know, like kind of pressure hose, fireman's hose, trying to wipe out the woman who's running away. Again, symbolizing Satan is pursuing God's people, trying to take them out, and he's trying to he's vomiting water after them to try and sweep them off their feet. We have to realise that this is going on. We can't just live life going through it saying, oh, everything's fine. Jesus won, so no trouble's going to come our way. Because Jesus has won, far worse trouble is coming our way. But ultimately, we are kept safe. And so we're going to look practically in a minute about how Satan might try and do that. But we've got to be aware of this. We have a furious enemy, and if we don't know this when difficulty arrives, it's just going to knock the wind out of us. If you don't have a sober understanding of that, difficulties will come, troubles will come, opposition will come, and we won't know what to do with it. But what happens each time is that the first time, the woman runs away, Satan pursues, she's given wings to fly away. And then the second time, he vomits out water to try and wipe her out, and the earth swallows the water up. 
In other words, Satan can try as much as he can to wipe out God's people. It's not going to work. The woman is still kept safe. And the point there, again, is not that trouble doesn't happen to Christians. So you've got the reference to time, times, and half a time. If a time is a year, times is two years. That's the way it often works in Jewish apocalyptic writings, which is what we've got there. And half a time, three and a half years, again, you've got the reference to persecution. The point is, even if it costs Christians their lives, God's people will not be wiped out. The church will stand and will not, and Satan will not prevail. And what Satan does is he realises he can't, at this point it seems, he, he realises I, I cannot take out the whole of God's people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and take out as many individuals as I can. And so what he does is he goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Satan will try and take out as many individual people as he can out of the fight. And we need to listen to this. There's a reason the Bible tells us this. And it's not so that we can just sit here and think, phew, good luck, um, a good job he's not going to take me out. The point is so we can look at it and look particularly at stuff that, that John says maybe in chapter 13 and say, I need to pay attention to this. Because if I don't know what's coming my way potentially, then I won't see it when it's coming. And we've got to be careful. Satan will try and take individual people out. And sometimes it seems he succeeds. And we've got to make sure that we don't, we aren't caught unaware. The Bible tells us, don't be unaware of Satan's plans. So we need to be aware of what's going on. So we're just going to look at a few ways um, that practically that Satan tries to wipe out God's people. And what that will involve is just really quickly summarising what goes on in chapter 13. And if you have questions about it, as it is kind of the weirdest, not weirdest, but the... It's got the beast in it, basically. That's, that's all you really need to say. 666 is in chapter 13. Um, you can come and chat after, and I won't be able to answer most of the questions. But um, we're just going to give an overview of that chapter, and then look, what, what does that look like practically? Because Satan is now going to pursue the women's descendants' offspring, the church, and we're on to the third lens as a result, which is now chapter 13. How is Satan going to try and take the church out? What happens in chapter 13 is Satan stands on the, on the shore of the sea and you have one beast who rises out of the sea. And that beast gets given Satan's authority. And is given the authority to destroy Christians and to kill Christians and to ask people to worship it. And then what happens is a second beast comes out of the land and starts telling people to worship the first beast. And the second beast ends up going around and printing the number of the first beast onto people's foreheads as a way of saying, you guys are following the beast. And, the, and, and chapter 13 tells us that um, war was made against those who didn't have the mark of the beast. What on earth is that talking about? In very broad terms, the beasts generally in Revelation represent empires. So you've got an ungodly, demonic empire rising out of the sea, and you've got another kind of, another, not another empire, but part of that empire is forcing people to worship the empire. Now, John's readers would probably have seen the Roman Empire, um, Roman empire behind this, because you've got a massive, impressive empire where emperors claim to be gods. And then you've also got something called the imperial cult, where people would go around and they'd say, you guys have to worship the emperor. And they'd end up building a statue to the emperor and they'd make sacrifices to the emperor. And what would happen as a result, if you were a Christian and you didn't worship the emperor, it's a little bit like you were walking around without 666 written on your forehead. You're kind of like, you're not worshipping the emperor. 
You're not going to the, the temple. You're not buying food that was sacrificed to the emperor down the down the shop. It would be very obvious that you weren't partaking in that. But by extension, it kind of it kind of applies to any ungodly empire that's going on. Satan gives authority to particular worldly empires or organisations, and what we don't want to do is start trying to find out which ones it is. It's obvious. When, when, it, when it's happening a lot of the time. So take ISIS, for example. It is clearly obvious that there's something demonic going on behind that organisation. You don't, you don't have to look too hard at it to realise that. So it's not saying that there's like, that the British, the United Kingdom is necessarily the beast or anything like that, but it's, it's referring to ungodly empires who will persecute or oppress or kind of try and snuff out Christians. And in the midst of that chapter, John says, here is a call for endurance. And faith of the saints. In other words, listen to this, because when this kind of stuff happens, you're going to need to be ready for it. And this kind of stuff has been happening for the last 2,000 years and will keep happening until the return of Jesus. So it's not like we're sitting here waiting for a beast to appear. Don't read this chapter like that. Think of it as, when the kind of stuff that this chapter describes happens in my day, or tomorrow morning, how am I going to respond to that? we just look through a few quick things. First way Satan tries to take out the church is oppression and persecution. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, to, with, the slawn, slawed, with the sword, he must be slain. Chapter 13, verse 10. Satan initiates persecution. Every time someone dies for the sake of the gospel, you can trace it back to, open up the curtains, you can see a dragon rushing after a woman trying to destroy her. Every time that that's going on. And that may be the kind of thing that some of us have to face here. Whether that comes to our country, or whether we end up going to different nations where actually we may end up giving up our lives for the sake of the gospel, or we may end up being exiled or put in prison for the sake of the gospel. Don't discount it. It's just worth being aware of that. Deception is the second one. The beast deceives all those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the first beast. Jesus said to his disciples, don't be deceived. So we need to make sure we're not deceived. But what are the kind of things that might deceive us? Well, I've just written a few down. Fame. It's kind of the kind of thing our culture loves. We love the idea of being famous, of being well known. Um, I mean, even as I'm speaking, I'm aware one of my desires is that you guys like me and enjoy the fact that I'm preaching now. It's deceiving. Obviously, it's a good thing for me to want you to be blessed. But the thing that drives it behind, which is I want to be well known, that is deception. It's a lie. It doesn't fulfill. Wealth. Amassing stuff for the sake of it. Like, I just need the latest gadget. I just need it. Why, why do you need it? I just need it. It's deception. Sex. Then sex is basically that. That is what I'm living for. I'm just going to have as much sex with as many people as I can. At what our culture throws at us a lot of the time. It's deception. Image. Kind of body image. The way we look. The way we're perceived by others. If that's the kind of thing we worship, then that's deception. Comfort. That's a stinger, particularly for people who live in a context where actually we have a fairly comfortable life. I like comfort. But if my ambition in life is to have a comfortable life, then I've been deceived. That's not the kind of thing Jesus promises us. So there's just a couple of deception. Just think, 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 what is it that you run the risk of being deceived by? And that's not, a, not as a kind of introspective kind of, ooh, what, what do I really need to repent of and now weep and everything? No, it's being aware of the kind of things that Satan could try and take you out on. What is it for you? I think me, comfort, that could be, that could be a big thing that, that gets me. 
So just being aware of that is helpful. That's why, that's why John warns his re- readers about these things happening. It's not just so they can have a systematic theology and say, ah, oh, well, the beast is this particular Roman em- emperor. That's not the reason it's written. The reason it's written is for endurance of the saints. And then finally, another one, social stigma. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark of the beast. That is the name of the beast and the number of its name. Don't ask me about the number now. Um, but the idea is, unless you are clearly following this beast, you can't do what you want. So you would probably have Christians going around not able to buy certain kinds of food because they're clearly not worshipping the emperor. So they turn up, they turn up and they'd be like, you're Christians, you don't worship the emperor, out of here. Now that is the kind of thing that can happen in a subtle way, where it's something like speaking out and saying, well, actually, whilst we love, we, we love people who are attracted to people of the same sex, we don't think same-sex relationship, uh, relationships are right. And speaking out that in this culture can lead to suddenly people putting their wall up and saying, you're a bigot. I'm not having any, not, no, I have no time for you. Or if you say something like, I think there is such a thing as absolute truth. And just walls go up and say, no, 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 no. You are dismissing other people's points of view as a result. And it can be subtle, but actually what happens is you can end up getting a bit of like social stigma that goes on. And that is, that is oppression in a sense. I know it's not dying for the sake of the gospel, but there are passages in the New Testament which talk about the idea of kind of just being rejected or being despised as a form of suffering for the gospel. So there are a few practical ways that Satan might try and take us out, and we need to be on the lookout for them and be aware of his plans. But, and we're coming into land now, all of this is going on. So you've got persecution, opposition, Satan is furiously trying to wipe out God's church. But Revelation 12 to 13 is not meant to be read in isolation. It's meant to be read with chapter 14 and the rest of the book. And in chapter 14, John sees this. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, with the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. They don't have the beast's name. They have God's name and Jesus' name written on their foreheads. Steph preached last week about the 144,000. It's a reference to all people who have been redeemed by Jesus. And they're standing, and they've been sealed with a different mark. They're saying, we're not defined by following this particular fad or this particular idea we're defined by following jesus and i heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder the voice i heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins so again that, that's pictorial imagery because the church is represented as the bride of christ so it's talking about People who God has made pure for himself. So not literally virgins, but people who spiritually, in a sense, have been made pure, who have been made virgins, so they are acceptable to God. God's the one who does the work on that front. We, we're not the ones who make ourselves pure. God, we purify ourselves by the blood of the Lamb. He's the one who makes us pure. These have been, the, uh, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no lie, for they are blameless. All of this is going on. It's like you can just imagine, in a sense, standing on Mount Zion where the Lamb is standing with the 144,000s, looking at the havoc that the beast is wreaking, and looking at suffering and persecution, and then you just look around and you see 144,000 people, the perfect ingathering of God's people, and they're singing a song that only they can learn. It's secret. They're the ones who are in. 
And if you're here today and you've put your trust in Jesus, we're the ones who are standing on Mount Zion singing that song with Jesus and saying, actually, whatever Satan tries to do, even if it costs us our lives, he can't wipe us out. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, is what Jesus said. If the band could come up, we're going to respond in a minute by singing. Are we singing before the throne of God above? Just to remind ourselves, we have someone who's standing in heaven. Who, even when we're going through the most intense suffering or temptation, he stands there and he prays for us. What I want to do is just finish and appeal to those of you who don't know Jesus. Who are standing there and you're saying, okay, well I kind of get what the passage is talking about now, but so what? Well, chapter 14 does go on to talk about those who don't follow the Lamb. And it's not pretty. Those who reject Jesus don't have a portion in new creation. They are, re- they are cast out. God says, okay, you, for your whole life you've said, no, I don't want you. In that, I'm going to give you your will. I'm going to give you what you want. And that is to be completely separated from me for eternity. I just want to appeal to you. If that's you, please cling to Jesus. Please cry out to Jesus. Find the person who brought you. Find one of the elders. Find, find a friend and say, how do I do that? How do I come to know Jesus? It's simple. It will cost you everything, as you can see in the passage we looked at. It will cost you everything. But it means saying, Jesus, I'm yours. I want you. I want, you. I want to follow you. I don't want the muck that my life has been. I want to follow you. And so if that's you, please come find me, one of the elders, or your, your friend, and we'll be happy to talk to you. But for the rest of us, if we can stand, we're going to sing before the throne of God above. And we've got to remember, there is hope. There's hope. The accuser has been thrown down, but God's people will be kept. And it doesn't mean we sit back and relax, but it means we remain faithful, confident, that even when Satan tempts us to despair, we can look up and see one in heaven who's standing... <laughs> And who has cast the accuser down. Father, we thank you. We thank you that the accuser has been defeated. We thank you that Satan has been defeated and cast down. And Father, we thank you that in the midst of that we can say we have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. By the word of our testimony because we love not our lives unto death. Father, I pray that we would be those who can say that hand on heart. Because we love not our lives unto death. Lord God, I pray, Father, for those of us here today who are gripped with the shame of the past, I pray you would undo that. You would destroy that. And Father, I pray that you would be with us now, Lord God, as we worship you and we fix our eyes on our great high priest who stands in heaven, Lord God, and that the accusations of the enemy would fade into the background as we look at the one who's praying for us, who's interceding for us, and who's keeping us. Lord, we love you. We want to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.